Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by the Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia and dedicated to the proposition articulated by Walter Lippmann during World War II that a strong and balanced foreign policy is the shield of our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman, counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments and a Bulwark contributor and a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center. I'm joined by my partner, Elliot Cohen, the Robert E. Osgood Professor of Strategy at Johns Hopkins School of International Studies in Washington, D.C., and the Arlie Burke Chair in Strategy at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Elliot Shanatova, Happy New Year. Well, Happy New Year to you. Usually you ask how I'm doing, and, you know, the answer today would be, personally, I'm doing just fine. But I really think that the world is going to hell and um, maybe we should talk about that in a sort of general way, but with reference to particular places and things. Would you agree? I do agree. I think we've got, you know, increasing kind of range of disorder around the world. And I think it's worth talking about it, first of all, because uh, we have, for good and sufficient reasons on this podcast, I think, devoted a lot of attention, of course, to the war in Ukraine, uh, some attention to our great power competition with China. We just uh, discussed your recent visit to Taipei, for instance. But those subjects have tended to suck almost all the oxygen out of the room uh, for everything else that's going on in the world. And so I I think it would be useful to, to touch on those things. I think it's also useful to try and see how much those things are connected back to either those big things we've been talking about, because I think in in many cases they are, but also to the underlying political political dysfunction that we face, you know, in the U.S. I mean, we're about, uh, as we speak, we're about 10 days away from a, a, a government shutdown it's possible that some of the more extreme members of the Freedom Caucus may put forward a motion to vacate the chair, which might drive Kevin McCarthy uh, out of his speakership. But there's just, you know, uh, a lot of uh, dysfunction in, in American politics. A poll just out, Pew Charitable Trust poll that shows Americans are uh, thoroughly disgusted and exhausted by American politics. And I have to say that pretty much captures the way I feel. So so let's dig into it. So um, we apparently have dodged a bullet at a potential uh, genocide. Of course, there's a genocide going on in Xinjiang province in, in China, where the Chinese are, are kind of waging a kind of continuing campaign against the Uyghur population. But we almost had another genocidal uh, ethnic cleansing going on in Nagorno-Karabakh. And it appears, at least as we're speaking you know, today, that there's a ceasefire that's been put in place and an agreement that the Armenian militias in that province, which is a an exclave of uh, Azerbaijan in Armenia, militias are going to demobilize. But we had a memo circulated by the former judge in the International Criminal Court, former Colombian ambassador to the United States, Luis Moreno Ocampo, basically saying there's a genocide going on potentially in Nagorno-Karabakh. It's about to happen. And nobody in the international community is paying any attention. 
should they have been and you know what should should they have done yeah well i mean it's uh you know there's a there's a terrible tendency i think to return to chamberlain's uh you know truly horrible formulation a far off people of uh, whom we know little which of course he famously said about um uh about the, the checks about the checks you know i think in the case of nagorno karabakh this was if I recall one in which there was uh, a fair amount of injustice on um, on both sides. Originally, originally the Armenians, you know, going back to the original fighting in the wake of the breakup of the Soviet Union, uh, the, the Armenians had the upper hand, and then gradually the Azeris came back, in part with Israeli and, and Turkish help. If you know, if you look at the, um, I think it's an Armenian enclave and exclave. Uh, uh, rather in, in Azerbaijan. Yes, I'm sorry. Did I misstate that? If I yeah, did, I, I apologize. The way around. Um, you know, the sad thing is, I think the way these things usually have been solved in the past is is population transfer. What is striking to me about it is that you, you begin to see real great power rivalries emerge in this part of the world where the Armenians used to be able to count on the Russians for support. As you say, everything's connected to everything else. The Russians basically are not there for them, and the Armenians hate that. Because their peacekeepers have been withdrawn uh, right. to, to go serve in Ukraine. But, but you know, the it's not clear that the Iranians are happy about the Azeris being on the march. Right. Um, and as I said, the Israelis and the Turks are both involved in the side of Azerbaijan. And so I think, you know, you're, what you're going to begin seeing, and I think you're already seeing to some extent in the Caucasus and in Central Asia is, you know, a return to a very tough form of great power politics where you have client states that are trying to use the big powers to play off against each other. It's interesting. We've, we have actually engaged in the region in a minor way, and the Europeans have engaged. Whether that'll be a happy outcome or not, I don't know. It... it it is one of those cases where a byproduct of the um, Russia-Ukraine war has been the destabilization of a different area. Um, and I think, you know, not that I want to say any good thing about Russian so-called peacekeepers, but I suspect that that probably had kept things more or less frozen, which is probably what the Russians wanted to begin with. Well, now looks like that's not happening. So who knows how, how much further this will go. This is also, I suspect, this is a case where there is an opportunity for American statesmanship to uh, perhaps get some advantage to insert our influence in an area that otherwise had been pretty much um, in the thrall of either the Russians or the Iranians, maybe, uh, maybe the Turks. Whether we will have the energy to do that, though, or would know how to do that the right way is, a, is another matter. I mean, instead, we seem to be expending diplomatic energy in other areas, which I, I certainly don't think are going to be particularly uh, fruitful. That, that, I think, by the way, is part of the larger critique of where American foreign policy is right now, that we're, you know, there, there, are, there are some things we should be focused on and other things we probably shouldn't be focused on as much as, as we are. I agree with that. So 
I mean, you're, first of all, you're right to highlight the fact that this flare-up of the earlier uh, conflict. I mean, there was a, a war in the '90s. We then had a a, a effort uh, which ended up pretty much in a fairly sweeping uh, Armenian uh, victory, and a lot of ethnic cleansing of Nagorno-Karabakh of its Azeri population. There was then this. Uh, 2020 war that took place while we were in the throes of COVID that nobody noticed, um, which uh, with a lot of support from from Turkey and some from Israel, the Azeris were able to you know recoup a lot of what they had lost, pretty much everything they had lost to the Armenians. And drones played a very large role in that, by the way. I mean, that was really, in some ways, a precursor to what we've seen in uh, Ukraine. Uh, absolutely, and as you say, there's a you know Armenian. Or Iranian connection here too, because of their concerns about Azeri separatism in in the uh, uh, northeast of uh, north. I'm sorry, northwest of Iran. So uh, you're right, I think, to highlight the fact that we could see more of this, not just in the Caucasus, but in Central Asia, where Russian influence is now kind of draining away, and you you see little signs of it uh, coming up in Central Asia, but. I guess I would say stay tuned, you know, more, we could see much more in this area, but I, you mentioned Iran's, which is, I think, a, a you know, a good opportunity to segue into a couple of dimensions of, of Iran. One is of course, the agreement to unfreeze $6 billion in Iranian assets held by the South Koreans in order to get a number of Americans, actually dual nationals who've been held unjustly by, by Iran. Um, you know, the administration has been at great pains to, um, say this is not a ransom, um, and that we're committed to getting, you know, Americans unjustly detained home. And that's certainly a, a, you know, a desirable thing, obviously for, for those individuals and their families and in particular, but in general, but there is no way I think you can, you know, uh, look at this as anything other than a a ransom. you know, and I, I mean, full disclosure, I testified against the precursor deal uh, that was reached in 2016, where I believe, if I'm not mistaken, we were talking about something like $1.2 billion, but the ante is clearly being upped, uh, you know, because uh, this was now $6 billion that was back to the Iranians. And of course, money is fungible. So you can say, well, they're only going to spend it on humanitarian things, but that $6 billion, right. they would have had to spend on humanitarian things otherwise that they're going to clearly spend on bad things. So, I mean, uh, what's your take on all of that? Well, you know, the thing that, that for well, first, I, I had exactly the same re- reaction that uh, you know, that $6 billion that just went into the pockets of the Iranian government, they're not going to use it for good purposes. It got a zero goodwill I think the you know the next day the Iranians were back to bashing us um, and kicking out IAEA inspectors. Right, and, and I think that, I mean, there are two dimensions. First, just on the American dimension, we it seems to me there are a number of areas, and uh, Taiwan, as we discussed last week, is one. But this is another where we just lie to ourselves, and maybe you know I I've never been able to figure out your your government experience is vaster than mine. Do people, when they say those things, actually believe them? Because it, it, on the surface of it, it's preposterous. I mean, you, you really, there has to be a kind of willing disbelief to convince yourself of that. Um, and so, I, you know, yes, I think it was a big mistake. But I think the other thing is, 
the the evolution of the Iranian problem um, is just it's one more in a whole set of problems that the United States is going to have to grapple with because on the, on the one hand um, it's clear the Iranians are they are benefiting from the fact that the Russians need them for drones and uh, probably other military technologies. Uh, the, that Ukraine war, again, the knock-on effects has kind of reinforced a, a de facto alliance between the Russians and the Ukrainians, which will have consequences. The, the Iranians continue to be, you know, very proficient at this sort of hybrid warfare stuff. On the other hand, they've got a weak economy and they're going to have a succession crisis that nobody seems to have anticipate. I mean, they and the public really, largely despises the right. theocracy. So, you know, who who knows? Are we are we have we been carefully anticipating what might happen when the supreme leader goes? I I tend to doubt it. I think we'll kind of react in the moment. Um, but and who knows whether you know will there be an opening to Iran depending on what kind of leadership you get? Or are you going to get leadership that is in some ways even worse? Um, it's this, it may be an opportunity or, alas, it may be even worse. I mean, you may get an Iranian government that says, okay, now's the time to go for broke on, uh, on, on nuclear weapons. So, you know, it's another, it's another tremendous source of instability. I guess the last thing I would say is, you know, it struck me, it struck me now for some time that we, after the miserable experience of Iraq, for reasons I fully understand, the dominant impulse in the United States government was to get the hell out of the Middle East. And I think we're just learning, you know, you can't, I mean, you just can't disregard what's happening in that part of the world because again, everything's connected to everything else. Yeah. Well, I mean, of course, you know, the Iranians and Russians are now um, kind of uh, exchanging uh, military technology and equipment. It's, it, you know, Iranian drones, which the Russians are now trying to replicate, uh, build inside Russia that they're using against Ukraine. You know, the president yesterday at the United Nations General Assembly uh, in his speech, once again said, uh, as all of his predecessors have back to uh, Bill Clinton, you know, uh, the Iranians uh, cannot be allowed to get a nuclear weapon. But, you know, the administration um, came into office saying we want to get back to the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, which was negotiated in the Obama administration, which was uh, American participation was um, ended by Donald Trump. They wanted to get back in, but they wanted it to be a longer and stronger agreement because a a number of the timelines in the original agreement were rapidly approaching, you know, in, including uh, an end to UN embargo on uh, military transfers to uh, to uh, Iran. So the administration engaged in a lot of diplomacy. It basically said there is no military option. That was something that uh, Rob Malley, the negotiator, said in testimony to the Congress multiple times, we don't believe there's a military well, option. He mysteriously disappeared, by the way. Well, he was under investigation for um, hand, his handling of classified information. We don't know the details of that, but the FBI is involved, so it sounds like it's fairly serious. There's a, it's 
details about the investigation are mysteriously showing up on the website of the English language Tehran Times, which is a, a media outlet associated with the regime. I, it, it's all very peculiar. But the point I was going to make is the administration said there's only diplomacy. There is no military solution. But they've now said we're not really negotiating about the JCPOA anymore. And Brett McGurk, that was attributed to him in the New York Times the other day, uh, which makes you wonder what, what they're actually doing. It's sort of from a policy point of view suggests that they've reached the null set. There's no, you know, there's, there's no military solution, but there's not really a diplomatic solution. It does sound like what they're looking for is a kind of informal, unwritten agreement that would somehow limit the Iranians, keep them below 60% enrichment, and that that pre, you know that prevents the for the Biden administration having to present anything to Congress because the law says they must present any agreement to the Congress. Uh, but it also, I think, means that you're a de facto accepting Iran as a threshold nuclear power. Am I wrong about that? No, I think I think that's right. I mean, it's all that stuff is the triumph of hope over experience. I think that you can. Uh, it, it's something we've discussed before that that belief that hits a lot of people in government that there's some complicated, subtle thing that skirts the law and is has lots of moving parts which can make a problem go away. And that I, I don't think either of us think that's the nature of international affairs. I have one question, though, just to go back to the Russia-Iran angle, uh, because it's going to tie into the Russia-North Korean angle, which we'll talk about in a, in a little bit. How much do you think, I mean, it's clear the Russians are desperate for certain kinds of arms. And they also probably want some of their own allies, given that they're becoming a dependency of China in certain respects. What do you think they'd be willing to give the Iranians? And in particular, do you think they would might be giving, willing to give the Iranians uh, nuclear technology or nuclear delivery technology? It's a tricky question particularly when you say delivery technology. So do I think the Russians would actually help the Iranians with sort of weaponization, creation of a warhead, et cetera? No, I don't. Um, and in part, I think they don't need to because, you know, as you know, from our government service, there's plenty of evidence that the IAEA has put forward that the Iranians had made great strides, you know, on that in that regard already in form of their so-called past military uh, dimensions of their program. But will they help them with their ballistic missile and uh, space capabilities? And those are very hard to distinguish from one another, right? Because if you solve the problem of staging a missile to put it into Earth orbit for, you know, uh, space purposes, it also happens to solve the staging problem if you want to have a multi-stage ballistic missile, including one capable of reaching not only large parts of Europe, but potentially all the way to you know continental United States. So yes, I think they would help them with delivery from that point of view, but not, you know, weaponization of a warhead or micro, you know, uh, miniaturization, those kinds of things. I, at least that's my, my, you know, suspicion, but who knows? I mean, I, I, I hope so. The, I think the fear, the fear is that the knock-on, again, these knock-on effects from Ukraine uh, could be pretty pernicious. I, now, I also think that 
um, the Ron problem may explain some of the peculiar sense of urgency that the administration has in going for a Israeli-Saudi deal. And I'll, I'll, let me just open the conversation on that one. I, this, again, seems to be one of those really complicated endeavors, which is just not going to succeed because, you know, first you're dealing with two very difficult leaders, uh, both the Saudi crown prince and Bibi Netanyahu, both of whom uh, have a variety of, of issues. Uh, in case of Bibi, also a very insecure domestic base, but MBS has to worry about his domestic base, too neither of whom I think are completely straightforward and uh, trustworthy. Um, and what I, for the life of me, I don't understand why we're investing so much effort in this. Because, look, they, they've had under-the-table connect, connections and conversations for a long time now. They can negotiate without us. You know, there are other countries like the UAE or Jordan that, you know, can offer their their good offices. And I, I, I have always believed in a, a form of policy physics, which is that at any given time, there's only a fixed amount of policy energy in the system. And if you're working on one thing, that means you're spending less time on other things, in this case, Ukraine and, and China. Because at the end of the day, you know, the, the actual decision-making and the diplomatic heavy lifting is done by a pretty small group of people and includes a secretary of state, maybe an undersecretary here or there, a national security advisor, or the president themselves. Well, those people need to get, you know, they need eight hours of sleep at night. They need to work out. Uh, they need an occasional day off. They just don't have the, the, their time and energy is not infinitely elastic. And so I don't understand why they're sluicing all that effort into this one. And my only, I have only two explanations for it, and then I'll stop and ask what you think. One is that they somehow think this is a way of dealing with the Iran thing. But the other is that they're, um, they're simply succumbing to that age-old siren, uh, which is the idea that I'm going to bring, you know, Arab-Israeli peace. When, when in fact, the real initiatives, beginning with Sadat's visit to Israel comes from within the region and it comes from the actors themselves. I mean, I think that was true, by the way, of the Abraham Accords. Absolutely. Uh, that it was the, you know, the UAE and the Israelis. And yes, we helped a bit at the end, but that's all we did. So I don't know. What do you think? So first, let me stipulate a few things, right? Number one, um, I think it would be an extremely good thing for there to be a follow-on to the Abraham Accords in the form of uh, Saudi-Israeli normalization. I think that would be good for everybody. I've been a signatory to a report that recommended it uh, at the beginning of the administration. And I also need to stipulate that I was critical at the outset of the administration about uh, their coming in full board to you know re-engage with the Iranians while holding our Gulf allies sort of at, you know, um, at, at, at one remove, you know, um, and that was in the form, first of all, of Biden's statements that he was going to turn MBS into a pariah, 
uh, the the delisting of the Houthis as a foreign terrorist organization, which uh, was meant to be an opening towards peace in Yemen. Instead, it became an opening to the Houthis uh, drone, droning and, and uh, rocketing um, Abu Dhabi and, and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. About which we did very little. About which we did nothing. You know, and then, of course, the administration discovered that they actually needed the Saudis to keep the price of oil down uh, after the war in Ukraine started. And they wondered why you know, the Saudis weren't all that, you know, receptive. So I have all those views. Now, having said that, I share your skepticism about this particular initiative. And I I share it because to me, you know, the degree of difficulty, if this were Olympic diving, you know, the degree of difficulty is really incredible here. Because here are the things that they have to do to make this all work. One, they will have to get a treaty with a security guarantee for the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and presumably a parallel treaty for Israel um, through the United States Senate. I think you could probably get 67 votes for a treaty uh, with Israel in the Senate. Maybe. Not sure. It's, I, w- I wouldn't say it's a sure thing, but I think you could do it. Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, this is a Congress, you know, the previous Congress with the composition wasn't that different you know, a couple of swings in Senate seats and House seats, voted against giving aid to Saudi Arabia for the war in Yemen. But now they're going to vote for a treaty that in perpetuity commits the United States to defend the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, presumably with our nuclear umbrella and perhaps with boots on the ground. I'm not sure I see that in the cards. I mean, and in my view, nothing could be worse than for the administration to go down this path and then have it fail in the United States Senate. Think back to Woodrow Wilson and the failure of the Treaty of Versailles. A, a treaty failure like this would be catastrophic, yes. in my view, for our other alliance, uh, other alliance relationships. As would, by the way, some of what you hear privately from the administration that, well, Article Five is not really a commitment. You know, it's a commitment to, it's a commitment to consult. It's not a causus federis doesn't immediately, you know, commit us to war. Having that kind of debate, by the way, will destabilize all our existing alliances in NATO with our uh, East Asian allies, etc. So that's point one. Point two, the Saudis are also asking for essentially access to the fuel, full nuclear fuel cycle as part of the nuclear energy program in a, a, a so-called Section 123 agreement with the United States to provide that assistance. And they're doing that, of course, because we conceded that to the Iranians in the JCPOA. Uh, other countries like the UAE signed a one two, three agreement that you know, forswore access to the entire fuel cycle. But there's a kind of, I think, huge potential non-proliferation moral hazard issue here, which is you know, we gave a security guarantee to Japan and and Germany, you know, after World War II. But part of that, you know, uh, deal was what our colleague at at SAIS, Frank Gavin, has called a strategy of inhibition, right? Which was we, we gave them a guarantee precisely so they wouldn't develop nuclear weapons. Here, we may be giving a security guarantee to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia only to find out that they are developing a nuclear weapon. And so th- there is that. 
the third kind of moving part of this that I find a little suspect is the notion that somehow this agreement will um, be part of our strategic competition with China because the Saudis will be signing up for our side, not the other side in this competition. How you memorialize and enforce that, I have no idea. And I can easily imagine the people in the Biden administration who are talking about this, talking themselves into this only to find themselves being thoroughly snookered by MBS on this problem. Fourth problem that I see is there is an element here inside the administration, I think, that has got sugar plum fairies dancing in their head about what I would call regime change in Israel, that somehow they are you know, going to use this prospect of normalization with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia to get Bibi Netanyahu to make some concessions to the Palestinians, which is one of the asking prices from MBS, that will cause his coalition to fail and create a new government in Israel, either with or without Bibi. Again, I think Bibi will run rings around these people. And yep. I and I I just don't see it happening. And then finally, you know, one of the reasons which never gets discussed about why we went to war in Iraq in 2003 was that the large scale presence of U.S. forces in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia since the end of the Gulf War was driving radicalization right. and recruitment for Al Qaeda. And that was one of his main it was bin Laden's main complaint in his fatwas was the desecration of the land of the two holy mosques by the presence of infidels including women, on the territory of the kingdom. So the administration is going to have to figure out, you know, what happens the day after the United States Senate, if it ever did, ratifies an Article 5 with the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. What's General Carilla, the commander of CENTCOM, going to come in and say, I need to have the following things if I need to be prepared to fight tonight to defend the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, Right. And that is going to drive them off their, you know, effort to reorient and, and um, I'm not going to say pacing threat because I know how you feel about that, but, <laughs> but the, to reorient our forces to deal with the serious challenge we face in the Indo-Pacific when they're going to have to, you know, deploy more forces, uh, you know, into the theater and maybe into the kingdom, which will then create a lot of this, you know, uh, radicalization dynamic again. So to me, solving all these problems, oh, by the way, in a presidential election year, I don't see it. Well, that, that may be one of the reasons to want to do it, too, that, you know, you're, if you're feeling domestically pressured, um, the, you know, foreign policy people, I think, usually feel pretty useless during a campaign season. And, and for know, good reason, like, because they are. They are. <laughs> uh, but, you know, so this may seem like a attractive thing. I, I find it all baffling. I think... You know, I, I mean, I, your reasons laid it out much better than I could. I, I will just say that, you know, partly because we're in a period right now where a lot of structures seem to be under pressure, there is a temptation to resort to guarantees and to try to kind of re, you know, restabilize the system by saying, well, we'll give so and so an Article Five, so and so an Article Five. Now, in some cases, I think we probably need to do that. I think Ukraine really is one. But to do it to a place which I agree, I, you cannot count on the stability of Saudi Arabia. You cannot count on its discretion, on its 
um, level-headedness when you need it to be level-headed. And I just, it seems to me to be cuckoo. Before we leave it, Elliot, let, let me say, if they could solve to my satisfaction the five issues I laid out and explain to me how they're going to do it, I'm open to it. I don't I hold, just I, don't hold your breath. I just think it's a very high bar to get there. It, it is a very high bar, and I, I'll stand by my point, which is these guys have other things that they should be doing with their time. Yeah, I agree. They they really do. So let me uh, let's maybe uh, bring this uh, closer to our own hemisphere, which you know it, it's I think it's fair to say that by and large, foreign policy people like us have on the whole tended to ignore our own hemisphere. And that's partly because we didn't have to worry about it that much, but also sheer ignorance and partly, you know, Eurocentrism and other, other things of that kind. So there, there are two things. So one, just an immediate story up North. And then I think we should talk about South of the border, which we've really not talked about on the podcast. So the Canadians and Indians are getting into a, a real tiff because the Canadians are basically accusing the Indians of having killed a Sikh um, separatist on Canadian soil. And I, you know, maybe this is a passing issue, but I think this is actually pretty significant uh, for a couple of reasons. One is, look, the Indians are being more assertive in a variety of ways. India is, uh, I think, quite deliberately trying to position itself on the world stage, but it's not clear to me that it's, and I think it's going to position itself in a pretty assertive way. Some of the ways we won't like our natural instinct seems to be to appease them on the ground that we need them on side for China, but I don't quite get that since they're the ones who are, have a chunk of their national territory under Chinese occupation and are you know, threatened with being surrounded by the, by the Chinese. So that, that seems to me to be a mistake. But on the other hand, you also have, you, know, you have had in Europe, and I think you may have had in Canada, you know, really people being willing to give sanctuary to, to terrorists, which is sort of what it sounds like this guy might have been. And in any case, the United States is finding itself in this awful position where we have to choose between one of our closest allies, neighbors, NATO member, you know, fellow more or less functioning democracy and a rising India. And um, it's, there's a similar dilemma that they face with Saudi Arabia. You know, do you just sort of forget Khashoggi and, and all that? And so the larger issue of uh, values in American foreign policy, as opposed to our interests, I think it is being surfaced by all this. So I think for that reason, this story is actually a rather important one. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've, you know, read the press accounts. I've you know seen what Justin Trudeau has said. I, I wonder whether, I don't know, you know, how much the Canadian government did behind the scenes before Trudeau spoke out. It might've been worthwhile maybe engaging the Indians privately before you went public on this. I just don't know enough. I guess, um, I mean, I'm not willing to, you know, uh, say, that anything is, you know, inconceivable. But I would say that we have seen an uptick around the world of efforts by a variety of different governments to kill or render 
regime opponents home in ways that we have not seen, you know, on, on this scale in the past. And I do think it's a, a, a symptom of the broader kind of glo- growing global disorder that we've been talking about. But I mean, you, you, I mean, I know you've seen the stories of these so-called, uh, you know, stations, you know, security stations yep. that the PRC supposedly has created in like New York City and elsewhere to keep track of overseas uh, Chinese people or to deal with, quote, the enemies of China. I mean, there's a pretty clear case in New Zealand, which I think you're, I, I know you're aware of, with uh, Anne-Marie Brady, a scholar who pretty clearly had her office tossed by agents of the Ministry of State Security in China because she's written extensively about Chinese hybrid hybrid warfare and so-called, you know, uh, you know, uh, magical tools. I can't remember the exact term she uses, but uh, uh, that the Chinese have put a lot of emphasis on, um, you know, the government of Turkey, the Iranians, there are a lot of governments that are doing this, you know, authoritarian governments that are going after uh, their opponents. And of course, under Modi, you know, India has taken a more authoritarian turn, although it remains you know, a functioning democracy of sorts, at least, um, at least electorally. So I don't know. I, I just don't know enough about this particular case to, you know, render a judgment, but it it does seem to me to be part of a larger trend that's alarming. And I'm not quite sure how we put that back in the box. I think it's true. Um, and I think part of the problem is that we we have never, I'm not sure we've ever really responded particularly aggressively and things, other things have happened. I mean, you know, there've been Russian dissidents who've uh, died mysteriously um, in the U S um, even in here in Washington, DC. And, you know, yeah. of course the Brits had self-administered of, blunt force trauma. Yeah. Right. Um, and I, I think, you know, the, it, this is part of a larger challenge to American statecraft, which is, we're going to have to be tougher and more transactional with certain states um, and not just ignore these things, which is what our tendency has been to do, but really exact serious costs from them. And I don't mean sanctions. Uh, I mean, things which are more, more painful than that, but it's, it's worrying. What, what's just as worrying, probably even more worrying, is what's happening south of the border. You know, we've had a uh, Ecuadorian presidential candidate get shot. The after a time where it looked like the Venezuelan uh, dictatorship would collapse, it's not. Uh, Mexico really has, a, as far as I can tell, a pretty terrible um, left-wing government. Um, and you know, what's worse is you just have a sense of you know, pretty broad breakdowns in law and order. There's something similar happening in uh, Colombia, again, under a left-wing president who may have been a former terrorist. Um, And that's all that. You have Lula back in Brazil, and he's, I don't know that Brazil is falling apart, but I do know that he's going out of his way to be oppositional to the United States. Right. You just kind of worry about, that continent. And there's probably not a whole lot we can do to change it. Um, But I suppose it is the case we should probably stop neglecting it. I I agree. And I mean, I think when you add, you know, uh, not just Mexico, but Central America into the mix, 
you know, you've got a combination of factors that are driving two very important domestic kind of uh, concerns. You know, one is drugs and fentanyl. We just had a horrendous case in New York City. Um, you know, a lot of this fentanyl is coming in, you know, through the Mexican uh, border. And then, of course, immigration. And, you know, those two issues are, are driving a lot of concern in the United States about our politics uh, and about, you know, what government is doing about it. And, and I, you know, I fear that the Biden administration is kind of whistling past the graveyard here. I mean, they're acting as if there's no problem at the border, you know, and, and look, border entries go up and they go down and, you know, so when they go go down, the administration says, oh, look, you know, our border policies are working. And then if they, you know, go up, they look the other way. And it's really driving, you know, political concern in states like Texas and, and uh, the other border states. It's now becoming an issue because Texas and Florida and others are sending some of these migrants. I mean, I, I decry the use of these people as pawns, but the, the fact that they're, you know, now showing up in New York is creating a problem in New York. I mean, uh, Joe Biden met with a lot of people uh, when he went up to the UN General Assembly session, but one of them was not Eric Adams, the mayor of New York, uh, because even though he's a Democrat, they're not on very good terms in part because of this issue. So, I, you know, I'm not sure, again, like you, I'm not sure what the answer is, but certainly neglect can't be the right answer. No, on the immigration front, I mean, there are two separable issues. One is the sort of chaotic governance in um, Central and parts of uh, Latin America, and that's one set of issues. Immigration is another one. I think they, actually on, on both sides, uh, some of us have probably been remiss in failing to talk about immigration, honestly. the I mean, you and I are both descendants of immigrants. I mean, everybody here is a descendant of immigrants other than Native Americans, and even they probably came over across the Bering Strait. But, you know, the fact is that once you get to a, some percentage of the population being recent immigrants, the history would tell you that you get trouble, um, that you have, uh, you know, previous populations feeling displaced and, and, uh, and so on. And in this case, it's, I think it's worsened really by a sense of lawlessness. Um, that this, you know, this is really not going through in a legal, legal and orderly way. And I think it's turned out to be very difficult for both parties to deal with that. And, you, you know, you want to absolutely. square, you want to square the American dream because there's no, absolutely no question of the enormously positive role that, uh, uh immigration plays in terms of, you know, our vitality our dynamism, uh, our demography, uh, on the one hand, on the other hand, you know, to think that unrestrained immigration is okay, that's not, that's not true either. And unfortunately, you know, I, I can't really think of a single politician who's addressing it head on, but maybe that's just part of the larger problem with American politics. Well, the late John McCain, I think, you know, tried to on a couple of occasions. Yeah. Um, uh, President Bush 43 tried to on a couple of occasions, both of them ultimately failed. Look, I mean, we need immigration, right? Maybe American, a lot of American industries are facing enormous labor shortages. Our own birth rate is dropping. We, you know, we do need to have immigration. But as, as you say, we need, you know, a orderly, reasonable process that allows 
the immigration to take place. And I think everybody agrees that that's not what we have now. And that, that I think is a, is a, is a huge uh, problem. And the fact that our political system seems totally incapable of dealing with it. Um, I mean, the last time we had a, I mean, I could be wrong about this because I'm not a, an expert on immigration. Uh, I know our colleague Linda Chavez at, at uh, Bulwark would, you know, have a better idea about this. But the last major piece of legislation, I believe, was the Immigration Act of 1860 of 1965. Yeah, I think we're still operating under essentially a 60 year old uh, immigration law when the conditions around the world have changed, obviously dramatically. Well, I, so let's try to kind of. Um not conclude this, but bring it nearer to the end with a question about the, at the heart of this, I think is American politics and, and how American politics affects our ability to act in the world. Now, I, I will say to a certain extent, you know, despite the enormous dysfunction, we've been able to as, act reasonably effectively where it mattered most, I think in Europe and in the Indo-Pacific up to a point. But that said, there are there are plenty of things that are really problematic and troubling. Do you think that that's this is just a passing phase? And I'll be even more pointed. Do, do you think that look once Trump and Biden are both out of the picture, you'll have a new generation of leaders, and the country will revert to what more of what you and I would think of as normal? I don't know. You know, because I, I, I could argue it round or flat. You know, I, I could argue that, well, first of all, it's clear that the public is about to get a rematch that it fervently does not want. It, it's it, astounding, isn't it? it? It's just, you know, it's clear every poll shows that, uh, you know, a large majority of Americans, including Democrats, do not want to see a replay of 2020. That, that they would, and and speaking myself as a septuagenarian, I think it's time for the septuagenarians to get off the stage and let younger people take their you know proper roles in, in governing our, our country. But having said that, I'm not at all confident. I mean, I think the country is deeply divided. I'm not at all confident that either party can create a stable governing majority right now. You know, Sarah Longwell, our our Bulwark colleague and the publisher of the Bulwark has said, and I agree with her, you know, the problem is we have one party that's becoming an authoritarian threat to democracy and another party that's just not very good at politics. And and that is a huge, huge problem and for a democracy that's been a two-party system you know, for uh, the entirety of, of the Republic's existence. Um Oh, that's a little bit of an overstatement. There were not two parties at the outset, and there have been brief periods where there was only one real party, and then there was Reconstruction, etc. So that's a bit of an overstatement. But this is fundamentally a two has been a two party system uh, in this country, and I I don't know that either party right now is capable of uh, you know, creating a, a what, I, what I would call a governing majority. I mean, we've had divided government in the Congress for a long time. We've had multiple elections where the winner of the popular vote either 
didn't you know win the electoral college or, or it was a real close run thing i mean i think the only time that the republicans have actually had a popular vote majority was in 2004 yeah oh i agree um I guess since you know, I'd like to end this on a more hopeful note. I guess I I continue to be convinced that most Americans are actually reasonably moderate. That there are, you know, minorities out there at both ends of the spectrum, particularly on the right these days, but not just on the right, who are really hold extreme beliefs. But I don't think that's where most of the country is. I mean, I think there's a reason why most of the people are, most people are kind of turned off from politics. It's not what any of us like. Um, what I wish I had a better sense of is how we break through this. And, you know, maybe it's only when the current generation goes and you get a new generation of, I don't know, governors from both parties um, or something else. But I, 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 I guess I find it difficult to believe that this can go on forever. I really do. Yeah. I mean, I think what worries me is it seems to me that we have the electoral coalitions of both parties kind of disaggregating, right? So Democrats are losing working class, non-college educated voters to the Republicans. And now whether that's just a Trump phenomenon or whether that's a more broad based, I, I don't know. I just don't know. We'll have to see. Meanwhile, extremism on the Republican side, including on things like abortion rights and, and other issues, is you know driving college educated voters out of the Republican Party and and you know voting for Democrats. Um, we've seen that in the 20, you know, 18, 20, and 22 cycles. But but I don't know that that gives you, you know, uh, I, I'm not sure sort of what the net net is and you know what the net assessment is of who who ends up with a governing coalition who can control the Congress and the executive and actually you know, govern the country without these perpetual crises over, you know, the debt limit or funding the government or all the other things that, you know, we have this incredibly performative politics that has nothing to do with governing. You know, and we've now got this, you know, sort of impeachment inquiry going against Biden. And there's a very large, not a large, but there is a majority, according to recent polling, that supports it even though there doesn't seem to be any evidence whatsoever that Biden's done anything wrong. Although his son is obviously a very sleazy guy, but um, there you have it. I, I'm sorry. It's just hard for me to, you know, be upbeat or optimistic. Well, all I can uh, uh, think of is the end of uh, one of the stories by the great Yiddish writer, Shalom Aleichem, where he says, but enough of me talking about my troubles. Let's talk about happier things. Tell me about the outbreak of cholera in Odessa. <laughs> uh, all, all right. right. Well, to our listeners, we'll try to cheer you up next time somehow. We'll try and figure that out between now and, and then. But for the moment, that will be all for this episode of Shield of the Republic. Thanks for allowing Elliot and me to depress you with this discussion of global chaos. <laughs>